From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I remember hearing stories a couple of years ago from my friend Casey Stanton after she attended a national conference for Catholic deacons. As I remember it, people at the conference would ask her something like, So, are you married to a deacon? No, Casey would reply. Maybe they'd ask, so what are you doing here? And Casey would say something like, I'm just really interested in the diaconate and what you're all thinking and talking about together. Cue a confused reaction. It's safe to say you don't usually find a woman who's not married to a deacon attending a deacon's conference as a participant. In the Catholic Church, only men can be ordained deacons. I think this story is a nice anecdotal introduction to Casey because it reveals a lot about her. She is never afraid to have an important conversation, even if the topic is unexpected or challenging, even if you're surprised to see her show up in the first place. She is brilliantly curious and always going to ask the big why questions. And she's someone who's so gifted in the diaconal ministries of the church, the things the church sets aside for deacons especially, including things like communal prayer, preaching the gospel, and working on the margins of society in pursuit of justice. For the past year, Casey has been serving as founding co-director of a new initiative called Discerning Deacons, which is engaging Catholics from all over the world about the question of ordaining women to the permanent diaconate in our church. And just to be clear from the start, they're not talking about ordaining women to the Catholic priesthood, which is a totally different topic. This question about women deacons is more open. It's in the realm of the possible within the Catholic Church. Pope Francis himself has called a commission to discern this possibility, and Casey and her team are working with Catholics to empower them to participate in this global discernment process. I'm excited to introduce Casey to you, and I think you'll see pretty quickly why she's one of my favorite people in the world to talk to. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Casey Stanton, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. So you and I are old friends. Um, and since this is not a journalistic enterprise, I can talk to my friends on here. And I, <laughs> but I will put that disclaimer out that I am yes. not unbiased. Um, you you're one of my favorite people. So I'm very excited to have you on to talk about your work with discerning deacons. So maybe we could start just tell tell folks who aren't as lucky as I am, who've known you for a long time, what, um, just about yourself and, uh, how you got involved with this project. Mm, uh, it's been some days it feels like my whole life has been preparing me to help shepherd this particular project in our mission, um, which is, you know, really to try to engage something that can feel controversial in our church. You know, this question of women's ordination to the diaconate, um, and to try to see if we can turn the volume down a little bit on it and hold space to look at each other and listen deeply and not be afraid to um, to to hear and listen to how the Holy Spirit might be moving in it. But um, practically, I'm a, a mom of two young kids. Uh, they are they get mad if I don't name them in things. <laughs> they are seven and nine, respectively, and big fans of our mission and project. And I grew up, um, I grew up in Boston. Uh, you know, grew up in Catholic school. We, of course, crossed paths at Notre Dame, um, and that was deeply formative for me in, in terms of fostering a real love of our church. Uh, I'm thinking to liturgical theology, Mike. Do you remember? Fagerberg, can we talk just, about that here? I was here? just talking Please? about him last night at a Jesuit community dinner, David Fagerberg. No way. So we have to tell people about the legend, the man, mm. the myth, the legend mm. of David Fagerberg, who I think is maybe going to retire soon. But he's an amazing faculty member at Notre Dame. And I remember petitioning him to get into his liturgical theology class because it was a master's level class and I was just a lowly undergrad. And there were lots of very astute PhD students that knew all the fancy words but I just soaked it up because I feel like he invited us to think about the depths and the beauty of our liturgical tradition. 
and how liturgy is the world, is the way God helps shape us into the world as it's meant to be done. And I loved it. Um, and was it sort of helped root me in our Catholic tradition more deeply. Um, it wasn't until many, many years later when I was um, in my final year of a Masters of Divinity program at Duke uh, here in North Carolina, and I was uh, serving as a chaplain intern at a women's prison in Raleigh. And I was just accompanying women in a place that is pretty horrific uh, and uh, hearing their own stories about what they were carrying, why they were incarcerated. Um, and in that place, they were really calling on me to be a minister to them and to preach, to pray with them, um, and to to be kind of God's hands and feet in that space. And it was while I was in ministry there and then would return to our own mass in our home parish that I started to feel kind of the press of the, the liturgical theology formation um, because women's lives were marked by incredible abuse and violence. And the more that you come to study the patterns of abuse and violence against women and the way it's patterned uh, and that it's it's not just about like an angry man, it's about kind of a whole worldview that views the men as essentially more important than women. Um, I'm oversimplifying, Mike. Um, it just felt like our Catholic liturgy, you know, I just started to ask the question, like, what, what does it say to everyone here that only men can proclaim the gospel on Sunday? What is it, is this really of God that women can't preach and break open the word when I just have known so many gifted women preachers, women religious, who clearly have gifts for preaching and can preach anywhere except in this really important time in the week. And so these questions just sort of nagged at me. And as they were nagging at me, Pope Francis met with the women religious of the world who brought forward this question to him in May of 2016 um, about whether, you know, what, what do you think Pope Francis about women in the diaconate, right? Could we have women deacons? And he responded in record time and said, yes, that's a great question. We should study it. And within three months, he had appointed a commission. Dr. Phyllis Lagana was on it, who's recognized as sort of a leading advocate and scholar that's demonstrating a case in favor of women in the diaconate from within the tradition. So there's a lot of this news was emerging. And that was the first thing at time I'd heard about women and the diaconate in the church. And it just felt like all of the lights came on at the same time, thinking, oh, if this has been in the past in the church and the church is taking it up, you know, what could that be for renewal of the church today? And so it just began my own learning journey, you know, six years ago now to just learn everything I could about the diaconate, about the history of the diaconate, about the restoration of the diaconate at the Second Vatican Council um, for married men, and kind of how that came to be. And I've just been living that question. So that is all, um, I don't know, I feel like that was a lot, maybe that was a little too ambling, Mike, in terms of like, various threads of backstory but no i love it okay. i appreciate your sharing that and mm -hmm. i want to hit on a number of those things that you sure. brought up but sure. I, maybe we should start by doing some of that context because i think sure. the diaconate is something that like i don't know i grew up and there was a deacon in the parish but i never like stopped to think about what's the mm -hmm. history of deacons i know he yes. couldn't like celebrate the mass but he was reading the gospel and preaching and uh, yeah. I knew could do is doing weddings and that. So like, yeah. So maybe do like the, could you do like the sure. quick, what have you learned? What's the history, the both yeah. like ancient history and the more modern history? Yeah. Well, one of the ways I learned was I went to, um, first of all, I just didn't realize it was new so that it was of course, part of the early church for the first thousand plus years. But that, um, essentially what happened was it went from being a permanent order in the church to a transitional order on the path to the priesthood. And so you lose the distinct um, order of deacons. And now we just have um, the Episcopacy, you know, priests and bishops. Um, that was about the 12th century. You know, these things happen over long periods of time. And I'm not actually an expert on the history. Um, but as that fell out of favor, you lose women deacons because there wasn't a path to become a priest. So now you're, you, you've sort of lost deacons on, on the whole, including women. And then it was at the Second Vatican Council that as the church is making this, you know, 
remarkable shift to discern its path in the modern world, especially in the wake of the Second World War, um, that this question, which was a 500-year-old request of the church, uh, kind of got new legs. And there had been these deacon circles all over Europe, especially rooted in the Caritas movement in Germany. Um, that was a major anchor. Of, it was people who were trying to learn and study about the diaconate, live a vocation of service, and be in conversation with their bishop about what a renewed permanent diaconate could mean for the renewal of the church. Um, so practically today, deacons are ministers of the word, of the liturgy, and of charity, caritas. And so they can, they're ministers of the cup in our, in our liturgy. Um, I love paying attention to what deacons do in the liturgy because it tells you a lot about what the church thinks about this role. And deacons really are these kind of ministers on the threshold, right? They're, they're the ones that are sending us out at the end of mass to go and live the gospel. They're beckoning us and inviting us to share the sign of peace with each other. Um, so those are some of their liturgical roles as ministers of the word. There's a preaching vocation and ministry inside of that. Um, and then as ministers of charity, they're meant to really animate the service of the church. Pope St. Pope John Paul II said that deacons, um, the diaconate is the, the church's service sacramentalized. And that in the same way we all share in the universal priesthood and that priests help us know what that means and they witness to it, um, we all share in the diaconia, the, the service of Jesus in the world and that deacons make that particularly visible in the life of our communities. So they're, they're meant to be widening and animating the work of service and justice uh, in, the, in the world, um, in their roles. So you would practically see them, there's, um, in a lot of ways, they're not that different from what lay people can do, right? So lay people can, we can baptize in special circumstances, you know, if um, in, in an emergency, but they're, they're formally conferred with orders that allow them to preside at liturgies of the word, particularly standing as official witnesses at baptisms, weddings, funerals. Um, so those kind of sacramental ministries. Um, and increasingly, deacons are in places in the world really serving as leaders of pastoral communities. And so they're, um, they're charged to, to be accountable to their bishop and to do as the bishop sends them out to do in meeting the needs of the people in the world. So when you talked about those kind of first thousand years and then you said, well, then we they lost deacons, including women deacons. And I know a word kind of that you, you maybe have used and, and others and we were having these conversations is restoring something that there was something that we had. And I know that there's research into what exactly that was or what it looked like. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not necessarily just like inventing something new, but trying to like see where in the tradition this has been and to reclaim it. So, yeah, what do you know about like the the history of this in the early church? I want to pull the name up of this really quick because it's just the most exciting thing in the world. Okay, um, so what we know, a few things. Um, that St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 16, the whole chapter I commend to people because it's not one that we typically read in church because it's just sort of like all these names listed, but it's a window into Paul's social world. You know, what was this universe that he was in in the earliest days of the church? And that that portion of the letter begins with, I commend to you, Phoebe, diaconos, the deacon, um, as a, you know, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and uh, help her with whatever she may require of you, for she has been a benefactor to many and to myself as well. So Phoebe is named in this letter with the title deacon. Um, now, we don't know exactly what Phoebe did. We don't know exactly what the first batch of deacons did. Um, we know in the Acts of the Apostles, as we read it this Easter season, we'll meet Stephen and, and the, the laying on of hands of the first community of deacons. The apostles realized that women were being let, widows were being left out of the daily distribution of bread in the community, and they needed to deputize some other folks to help with ensuring that everybody's needs were being met in a community that was complicated and, you know, Jew and Greek, people of different ethnic backgrounds that were coming together in this new community and somewhere people were being left out. And it was the deacon's role to make sure that doesn't happen. 
But then in the book of Acts, we don't hear about him again. What happens next is Stephen becomes our, the first martyr, right? He preaches this incredibly, he tells the whole story of salvation and they stone him to death. So this is the origin story of the diaconate. Um, and St. Phoebe is, is a part of this early, the, the window we have into the early church. But then there is tremendous evidence that continues to be uncovered. So this is what I was, um, there's this Byzantine basilica that was um, uncovered in Israel. It's a 1,600-year-old church that is filled with inscriptions. Um, the Holy Mother Sophronia, Theodosia the Diaconia, the deaconess, the deacon. Um, and it's filled with clergy women. Um, and it, they thought when they first found this that it was maybe a little chapel. And then they, as they continued to, as archaeologists continued to uncover it, it was a three-nave basilica. And there are priests and there are women deacons. And that feels to me a little bit like the Holy Spirit is moonlighting as an archaeologist. <laughs> like, hey guys, they were here. You don't have to be afraid. It's okay. The church was all right with this. It's a good thing. We don't have to it's not just a capitulation to modern sensibilities or postmodern identity politics or something. This is something that is, is um, we can rediscover and recover. At the same time, Mike, the we can't make this determination for the church today solely on the basis of historical evidence or even of theology. This is what when, um, you know, when Pope Benedict was serving as Cardinal, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger over the, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he commissioned an international theological commission to study this question. And the conclusion of their report was exactly this, that on the basis of history and theology alone, we can't, the church can't render a judgment. We, it actually is entrusted to the ministry of discernment in the church. It's an open question. And so what I find is that people collapse the questions about ordination of the priesthood and ordination of the diaconate. And I think a really important part of our mission in discerning deacons is to just draw the distinctions that the diaconate isn't the priesthood. They aren't the same thing in the life of the church. And they aren't meant to be. And so we can we can look at one thing and it doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about the other. Um, and I find that when people want to close down the conversation, they collapse it. Well, this is about the ordination of women. The church cannot ordain women ever. They have said it. They have ruled definitively. It's like, nope. Yes, the canon says today that only married, only men can be ordained validly in the church. But that doesn't, that canon is different than Pope John Paul II's words saying that the church has ruled authoritatively about the ordination of women to the priesthood. It's a different level of teaching and judgment making. We revise the code of canon law not infrequently, right? That's happened in the last year or two to become more accountable, particularly around clergy abuse cases and accountability for priests and bishops. So it's something that can be revised and that the code and the canon law needs to flow and follow from where we are. And, and so we're trying to draw some of the distinctions around that. So you mentioned that. So that report that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger had commissioned, uh, the finding there was that this has to be kind of left to the mission of discernment that the church is entrusted with, which brings me to uh, you, the project you're working for now, discerning mm -hmm. deacons, in which we see that word right there at the front. That's a popular word for Jesuits and friends of Jesuits. Um, so I'm curious if maybe you could just bring us to that project and, mm -hmm. and how that how that got started and, and what your mission is. Yeah, it's funny because the roots of the project really go back to several years ago and um, meeting a Jesuit who had done work on the question of women's leadership and particularly had studied the diaconate. And I remember the first time we spoke and sharing this sense of um, kind of what maybe could be unfolding in the church around this. And it was Easter. It was the Easter season. And after the conversation, I remember just having that heart burning feeling inside, like heart so alive and so much consolation that this was a good thing to talk about. And it felt to me like it was bringing forward a lot of threads of my life of 
of being, you know, told as a young girl to become a woman of courage and confidence and to not be afraid to lead and this desire to live the gospel boldly and and here was this path to try to walk in and there's a lot of kind of hearts alive in that. So the discernment for me personally has always been about trying to stay close to the heart of Jesus at every turn and trust in the way that unfolds. So before we launched Discerning Deacons, we organized a virtual Zoom prayer service for the Feast of St. Phoebe back in 2020. So this is like deep COVID. I just had been learned, just learned about St. Phoebe. I'd been studying about deacons um, and really just was hungry to meet anyone else. I didn't know if I was all alone. Am I the only one who's paying attention to this commission? Like I felt pretty isolated and alone. I was going to my parish. I was ministering at the VA hospital. I was still doing work at the prison, but I felt pretty isolated from other Catholic women. I didn't know if there were others out there like me. And so I kind of went on this mission to just try to find other women who maybe this was resonant for as well. And over the course of the year, and actually COVID became this container for us to come together and pray together and and pray with the word of God to discern our own, look back on our own vocational stories and unfoldings. And then we said, what could we, there's a lot about the diaconate that resonates deeply with our vocational desire. And what do we do with that? We feel like Jesus is sitting here saying to us, you're a deacon, and but we're in a church that can't hear that. And so we don't know what to do with that. How can we be faithful to the church? So we just did a super ordinary thing of praying to a saint on our feast day. And over 500 people came to that first gathering. Partly, I think, because Father Jim Martin shared about it. Thank you. Jesuits have really been at every turn of our project. <laughs> so I just want to give the appropriate credit and shout out for that because it hasn't been insignificant. I think having a priest say to me, yes, I think you could be called to be. Jesus could be calling you to that. It was earth shattering for me. I wasn't just delusional. I'm not just crazy. I'm not just hearing voices. How can I faithfully discern this and live in the tension of it while trying to grow in my love and fidelity to the church? And it was, it has been priest friends along the way, you know, friars from the Holy Name province, Jesuits, parish priests who have been encouragers and who say, I see you, I see that you are living this and I encourage you. That has really helped me feel like I'm I'm walking on a road that's faithful. Um, so we, we had this prayer service and women just shared some of their stories, some of their laments, some of what it's been to journey with this sense of vocation. Um, and then a few months later, we were invited to think about um, this little planning group, you know, sort of how could we continue to grow this conversation? And one of the first things I wanted to do was see if we could listen and find more women who felt like this was the call in their life. And so um, we were able to commission a, a qualitative research study. So interviewing over 40 women all around the U.S. who are not um, women religious, vowed religious, um, but who more are in sort of a lay minister category. And just to notice if there are patterns and themes to the way that people's vocation has unfolded, whether people are in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, 50s, 60s, kind of how how is it unfolded? What are the themes here around how Catholic women in particular are feeling called and how they navigate that call in the context of the church? And I'll say those were really powerful interviews to be a part of. There is a lot, you know, inviting women to share in a container where it was in total confidentiality. It's women were saying things they had never spoken aloud before about some of the pain they were carrying, um, about how they are made to feel invisible, how new priests come in and completely don't recognize their ministry, uh, how contingent their roles can be, that it's seen as a job, not as a lifelong vocation. And the difference that women feel like it could make for the people they serve, for the, the people they serve to feel like the official church is here versus here's the, here's the woman who's been accompanying me, but when's the real minister coming? Which is so painful, you know? Or on the flip side, people saying, you've been the minister to me. Why can't you be the person who presides at our wedding. You're the one who's prepared us and we feel like you know us and love us and, or you've accompanied enough in grief and, and 
loss as a family. You've been the pastoral caregiver. We'd love for you to preach at the funeral, you know. And so this sense of women being cut off from some of the sacramental ministry and the pain of that, because we love the sacraments and that's the ground of our faith. Um, so the Serene Deacons has been, my own hope is just, it was really a shift, Mike, from saying, okay, if the church is discerning this and I'm part of the church, am I supposed to do more than just pray that it works out, that it unfolds? Am I supposed to pray with my actual feet and life and body and commitments and what I do with my time and energy? And of course, the Holy Spirit's answer was like, yes, that's how everything works. You know, you can't just, <laughs> you can't just wish something into being. Like, it's like the Holy Spirit's hard to make real claims on me. And that it's, we have to pray with our feet. And, and I think sometimes it's so easy to feel like the church is so big and old and vast and wide. Like, how could I contribute to something that feels that big? And yet that's, we're all invited. We share an equal dignity by virtue of our baptism to be, you know, to, to contribute, to be healthy members in the body of Christ. And that's where the synod uh, and its unfolding has been so remarkable and feels really graced and providential in terms of our project coming online just last April, 2021, right as Sister Natalie Bequart was, you know, appointed to the team on the Synod of Bishops and as they were preparing the way for a really revolutionary moment in the Catholic Church that says in the face of massive crises that we're facing of division, polarization, climate, war, um, coming out of COVID and sort of how we're all marked by that experience that what Pope Francis in his prophetic wisdom and vision is saying is what the church needs to do in the face of all that is listen, listen to the cries of the people, the dreams of young people, the witness and lament of women. And in that deep listening, then the church can discover again her mission and purpose as being a light to the world, proclaiming the gospel. So this the synodal moment is an invitation to, again, pray with our feet, to, to be protagonists, not only kind of observers of what's happening in our church, but to try to participate. And I think with discerning deacons, we were trying to open up a path where ordinary Catholics in the pews could learn a little bit more about the history of deacons, the conversation today, the restoration of the diaconate just, you know, just over 50 years ago. And then not just learn, but be invited to actively participate in the discernment. So we're trying to kind of practice the art of communal discernment, which frankly, we don't really know how to do in our diocesan or parish communities necessarily. Religious orders have incredible traditions of this and bring so much wisdom to this synodal process. But we don't necessarily all know how to do that. You know, at my own church, when we were thinking about putting a strategic plan together, it was like, whoa, we'll just put out a survey, you know, and I remember saying, what if we all meet, met together and we talked about what we love about this community and, you know, why we, what we feel like we would love to be a part of here. And, and it was a participatory process, you know, and that just lit people on fire. And we had a whole different set of conversations because we strengthened our community along the way. And that's, that's what the synodal church is about. That's in a lot of ways what discerning deacons is about. It's just how can we become a more participatory church? And not try to be like an intense advocacy campaign, like launching hand grenades into the chancery and, you know, organizing like direct protests. Not that there's not a place for that in our world, but really saying we're already so divided. I don't want to lead a project or an initiative that's going to add to the division in our church. I want to be part of us discovering how we could talk about something that maybe feels scary and risky, but we could turn the volume down and we could, everyone doesn't already have to agree. This thing is not foregone conclusion. It could be, it's very possible that it's not the right thing. The Holy Spirit isn't asking the church to ordain women as deacons today. We, I don't know the answer. The church is so big and huge. But I think it's... Um, I think we can't be afraid to ask the question and to hold the question together and to really be okay with people who are afraid and concerned and have a lot of reservations or have a lot of really valid 
questions about what this would actually mean. Would this be a good thing? I don't know. Will this just clericize more people and, and send the message that you have to be ordained in order to be a protagonist in the church? You know, maybe this is taking us in the wrong direction. I think there's really important considerations to bring to bear. And we want to hold all those. And that's what we did last, last summer. That's what we did. We engaged 1,500 people in a listening process around communal discernment and really invited people, ego down, Holy Spirit up, and how, if given the context we're in, how would, if, if, we, if the church decided to ordain women deacons tomorrow, what would that mean in, in your own community? What impact might it have? What concerns does it raise? Um, and overwhelmingly, while there are really important considerations, what I feel like is coming through again and again is the difference this could make for sharing the good news with people who haven't heard it yet. That we talk all the time about how people are leaving the church and how do we get them back and all this. And I'm like, you know, I think hearing it would matter for young people. It does matter for a lot of folks for the church to kind of walk their walk a bit around their teaching on the equal dignity of not that we're all the same, but that we are all created in the beautiful image of God and that we could reflect that more robustly in our liturgical celebrations, which we say is that's the most important thing we do every week. And it's because of how important it is that it would, could I think be evangelizing and healing and renewing. Well, thank you for sharing all of this. And I have a lot of questions. Okay. Um, maybe I'll that. start with this one about, so what discerning deacons is doing and engaging people and this work of discernment. Now I know you're, you have a background as a community organizer and community organizer. So like I see those skills coming through here in terms of getting people together and talking. Now, one big difference between say political organizing in a community, say about affordable housing or uh, more access to medical care or criminal justice, you can often go to people who are elected and put pressure on them. And if they don't respond in a way that is beneficial to the community, a really good community, or I can say, hey, we'll throw you out and pick and vote for someone who will do those things. Like, there is some real political pressure you can apply to take some of that power. Mm-hmm. It's different in the church, certainly. And even the way you're talking about it as discernment and not throwing the hand grenades, not doing the public demonstrations. Uh, it seems different to me, but I'm just curious for you as someone with that background, what have been some of the, the differences, some of the challenges? Yeah. How do you do kind of thread that needle and approach it to like kind of work in this context? I think a lot about the power of witness and that what we are called to do is be truthful about the things we've seen and heard and know. And in the telling of our stories, in the sharing of our lives, in the works of our hands, um, I think the courageous turn that we're making is to try to make it more visible what women are already doing, how women are already serving, how women are already in so many ways living a diaconal vocation. But just as the, um, you know, the reason given at the Second Vatican Council for why, why they should ordain men was that they're, they're essentially living this vocation without the grace and the benefit of the sacrament. And so we have all these women who are doing it, and, but without the grace of the sacrament. And so I think it's not so much an agitational ministry or mission. I think it's a mission of... When we meet each other as women in different places, we move from feeling isolated to where it's, we're not the only one, we're not alone. And when we gather together and we hear each other's stories, we realize not only are we not alone, maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to do something with us, through us, and, through, and, and then how can we faithfully bear witness to that? So there's a number of examples of that unfolding of women now because of discerning deacons feeling more emboldened i think to speak aloud that they have just always actually felt a vocation to to the diaconate and if the ch- church opened the doors tomorrow they would be ready to discern the call and you know and wanting to actually not just say that to their closest circle of friends or their husbands or their children but to their bishops and their priests like we have to make this visible 
to those who have the authority of governance and decision making. So that's where the where I think Pope Francis' invitation to a process of encounter, learning, and discernment is key. And we just want to have the courage to bring our witness to our bishops and priests and open up a space of encounter and real listening. And I trust the ministry of discernment. I trust bishops in their wisdom to be able to make a distinction between what is of God and what is not of God. What we want to encourage is them to not be afraid to meet us and for women to not be afraid to witness, even when it feels scary. You know, you feel like, oh my gosh, if they don't receive this, you know, do I lose the opportunity to minister to people? I don't want to risk that. It's not worth risking. Other, This ministry is more important than me having a certain title. You know, And again and again, women will forgo the title to continue to pursue their ministry. But then there's so many folks out there who can't pursue their ministry without a title. Like, you know, in the, in the North Carolina Department of Corrections, if you want to be a prison minister, you need to be ordained by your religious body. That's just a fact. It's just the world as it actually is. So what do you do as a Catholic woman? Well, some women, they try to go sideways. Same, same deal. We have this incredible young woman who... Um, you know, who's been in the military her whole life. It's a military career. And she sees that women are underserved by and want really has felt this strong call to chaplaincy in the prison in in the military. But there's not a path for her. She has to, you know, become a non-denominational minister in order to be able to serve. And it just actually is breaking her whole heart. I met women in the VA hospital who had the same story. They're like, don't tell anybody I'm Catholic, but you know I'm Catholic. You know I go to Mass every week, maybe every day. But in order for me to work here and minister, I have to kind of have this other identity. So this is the world we're in right now. And part of the work of Discerning Deacons is just shedding a light on it and saying, does this have to be so? I would love for us to just decide pretty quickly that it doesn't have to be so, so we can get on with the important work of evangelizing in ministry. It just feel like, come on, guys, let's let's move along. We can do this. It's not actually, it's not going to turn the world upside down. I mean, I'm thinking this, you know, Mike, it's the 50th anniversary this year of women being admitted to Notre Dame. And so they're doing, you know, they're celebrating that all year. And at the time, it was apocalyptic. They're like, this is the end of the greatness of Notre Dame. We can't be a co-ed institution, you know? And I think sometimes we have this apocalyptic fear and we have to remember that until the 70s and 80s, you know, women couldn't proclaim readings in the, in the liturgy. They couldn't sing in the choir and cantor. They couldn't be extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. So they couldn't be altar service formally on the books until the 90s. So the church has been slowly changing what the liturgical and sacramental roles of women are. And I think it's right that it be slow. Like we're a big institution. We we it shouldn't we want to make the right choices for the right reason. So it should be a slow discernment. And yet more recently it feels like it's starting to pick up with its urgency. That actually there's some urgency and the decision isn't should we? It's like is now the right time? And what's at stake if we refi- if we keep kicking the can down the road and if we delay on a decision, you know, and can we make a decision that doesn't rip the church apart? But can the decision be part of how the church is renewed and healed in moving forward together? I think that's that's really the frame, I think, of where we are right now in the church and why we want to serve the discernment. So I think anyone listening to you on this podcast um, will know by now that you are a preacher, mm-hmm. whether or not you are permitted to preach at the mass in a Catholic setting, you are, you like live your life as a preacher. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you mentioned kind of working in prison and being at Duke, which, hey, it's Protestant. Women can yes. preach at all kinds of things. <laughs> Maybe you even got to um, in different settings. Um, so I know that particular role, being able to preach the gospel, has been an important one to you. And maybe just talk about the, the call to that. What what the beauty of preaching? Preaching, I feel like so often in Catholic circles, gets kind of left 
behind we're such like a sacramental church and the eucharist is the heart which is great but then also like sometimes it feels like preaching gets left to the side mm. compared to our protestant brothers and sisters many of mm. whom are take it maybe more seriously um mm. so yeah what about preaching strikes you why do you that call for you why is that an important piece they think that then and also why women preaching why would that be such an important thing yeah preaching um thanks for that question mike i think um for me, it just starts with a real love of the word. Uh, and I think back to just reading the scriptures in the morning with a small group of people, actually at Siegfried in the morning in the chapel and reading this is the a dormant Notre Dame. A dormant Notre Dame just I'm going to get in trouble because Notre Dame, <laughs> Notre Dame has come up so many times and the Jesuits are already prickly I about know, Notre Dame. I know. I know. We have to come back. There's so much Jesuit love in my heart, but there is a deep Notre we'll Dame formation. Um, but just realizing that the word was alive, like the notion that it's not this dead letter, that it speaks, that it, it is a living thing. And I just would read the scriptures and just have to talk about them, have to talk about them with other people, have to share them. And I, um, I think this vocation has been nurtured at different points. When I was in high school, at a, uh, I went to a Sacred Heart High School in Boston. And for our sophomore religion class, we were expected to prepare a homily um, because there was a sense that if you are a Christian disciple, you should be able to say something about the word of God for the people and um, something edifying. And so it was sort of just expected. And... For me, I, I think and I wonder how, you know, priests must have might have felt this during COVID and during the early pandemic when they were robbed of the opportunity to preach to their communities every week or every day. And what that does to your own relationship with God. For me, preaching, if I don't actively seek out ways and spaces to reflect on what the word of God has to say, my own spiritual life starts to suffer. I get dry and crusty. I, um, because God's speaking to me in that I need, you know, it's not the God is a word for me. God's showing me more about who God is and what God's about. And, and the scriptures are revealing that and kind of widening and deepening our, the sense that we're not alone and that there's just such stories that can hold us, especially in this moment where it feels like we don't have a common story. There's so much where we're not all receiving the same stories. We're so fragmented. The word of God is something that connects us so deeply. So preaching is, um, you know, it's a whole way of life. It's like a living, one, one wonderful woman chaplain out from the West Coast described it as a living Lexio Divina. That you you to take up the task of preaching, you're you're letting yourself just live that word, that scripture for the week, and really praying, God, what is it you want to say to your particular this particular people in this particular moment through me? What do you have for me? And again and again, I just find it's a deepening of my own intimacy with God, and that that's not over and against our sacramental tradition. It's actually because of our sacramental tradition that I feel equipped to name the grace that's infused in creation and in reality, and that the Eucharist is the summit of and a, an incredibly powerful reflection and reminder and living presence of Jesus's presence in our life. But that's not the only that Jesus is present in the people, that, that, that creation is charged with the grandeur of God, you know, as we can often think this tide, this Easter, an Easter tide, be reminded of those signs. So preaching, I think, is is an incredibly key piece of this for me and for so many. When we listened to people last summer, again and again, it was a major theme that came up. And I think witnesses like Catholic Women Preach demonstrate the gifts for preaching that God is abundantly pouring out in women. Not only the gifts, but also that women have taken up the task to be formed, to study, to prepare, to learn the art. I think that's the other piece. It's not just, it is different than just, than only getting up and giving a witness talk. There's, you know, you need to understand the biblical scholarship. What is the field of homiletics? There's different modes and what are particularly Catholic modes of preaching and 
Um, I think there's a real hunger, and I think this cuts across different divisions of right and left, progressive, traditional. I think there's a hunger for biblical preaching in our tradition, for, for widening and deepening our scriptural imagination, because our tradition is so scriptural. Like our liturgy is deeply scriptural. You know, the, we read the whole Bible together, but I think somehow we still don't have a, there's more to do to cultivate our biblical imagination and that preaching is trying to do that. So preachers like Father Jude Siciliano, who's a Dominican, who's our first endorser of the project, who just is a remarkable preacher. Um, and he knows women have the gifts for this and that the church could be strengthened by allowing those gifts to flourish for women to have a space to step in and and proclaim the gospel and and preach on it. So you mentioned that uh, kind of along the way, um, you've had, well, Dominican supporters and diocesan supporters. You mentioned some Jesuits, too. And I'm curious for you, kind of from the Ignatian tradition, what uh, you and the leaders in the project can like find in the Ignatian tradition that can like, kind of support you in your work, mm-hmm. how the discerning you're doing and the discernment that Jesuits talk about and practice uh, come together. Yeah, just, you know, we are the Jesuit podcast. So I'm curious <laughs> for you, like, what, what, what resources from the, the Ignatian tradition uh, support mm-hmm. you in your work? Yeah, and my, my colleague and co-director, Elia Hidalgo, who was at Dolores Mission for a dozen years, um, she helps to co-lead a weekly examine that we do on Fridays with anyone involved in the project as it's time to kind of just half an hour grounding ourselves where in an examine that invites people to particularly bring to mind any of the experiences that have in and through our discerning deacons work, you know, and how can we develop habits together even as an internal culture of really paying attention every day to the movements and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes it feels like we're just getting caught up in the spirit and we're like, where's the ground? Where are we going next? What's How is it unfolding? But I think an Ignatian discipline trains you to learn how to trust in those promptings and those noticings and to, to lean in with greater faith and trust. Um, The other point of intersection, I think, is that so many women that we've connected with have really rich experiences and have done the 19th annotation or have made, um, have have done the full spiritual exercises in their path. And that um, we've often, often are working in Jesuit universities or high schools and campus ministries or Jesuit affiliated parishes. And I think there's a lot of ways that because of the practice of the exercises and a belief that um, it's not that it's all about feelings, but that our feelings and experiences can be ways that God speaks to us, that that's a valid way of knowing. It's not the only site of knowing, but a valid one. Um, I think it means that Jesuits are receptive to, to hearing what women and believing women when they say they're experiencing this sense of call and vocation. So I think there's a real power that Jesuits have, um, and I think to in this recognition, in this seeing work of saying, I see you, I see that you are trying to show up in this, I see that you are deeply prayerful and, and trying to engage this with fidelity. So I think um, there's both the ways and the gifts of the spiritual, the, the traditions inside of Ignatian spirituality that so many women in our network live and are grounded in, and also this role that I think Jesuits have to play of seeing us and helping us then take courage. And I think, how do we take the next step of walking together? And of I think when it means a lot when priests say it out loud, not just to us, but to each other recognizing that there's vocational gifts here for the church and how how can we accompany each other in in bringing those forward more fully well casey i'm so grateful for uh, this time and uh as you've been talking i just keep thinking about the, the book of esther uh in which you have this uh, uh esther a woman in her faith community who is like kind of unsure but getting kind of prepared to to lead and leading and uh, but then being told essentially like by her uncle like maybe you were born for such a time is this and mm-hmm. i just feel that uh i don't know i just hearing you talk about this for me it mm-hmm. just feels like so in terms of vocational like being where god is calling i just feel that from you and your passion mm-hmm. and your um yeah your commitment to it i think it was very moving uh, for me to to kind of just 
give you the space to to share and uh, i'm hopefully uh folks who, who listen will will agree and uh can can look you up and we'll make sure we, we link to your website uh in our show notes and are there any uh, ways specifically coming up you might want to mention for folks that they can can get involved sure i'm not when does the podcast run mike um we'll put we it out next week okay well one of the there maybe some people are just hearing about the synod on synodality <laughs> and haven't yet had a chance to drop in and participate so we are hosting kind of like a last call to participate moment in may if folks haven't had a chance or aren't in a parish or diocese where a whole lot has been going on um and if they want to join in our consultation which is really it's not particular to the question of women deacons it's really just living this bigger question about how sharing and reflecting on our own path and journeying with the church, what have been the hopes and the joys, what have been the challenges and the obstacles. So that's um, next May, but also we're going on a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe, to Mexico City, to um, seek her intercession, to bring forward our own prayers, and also just to actually hug each other and break bread and do mass because our all of our work has been so much over Zoom in these this first year. And we have done a lot together, but really feel like there's this growing community and we want to come together. So if people want to, you know, come on board, we'd love to have folks join us um, in Mexico City as we celebrate the Feast of St. Phoebe, the September 3rd. It's over Labor Day weekend this year, and you can head to our website to learn more. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Casey, so much. And prayers uh, for you and your, your team as you continue this uh, really essential work of discernment. Thank you so much for your listening and for the invitation to be here. I really appreciate it, Mike. I just want to give a shout out and show some love for Father Warren Sazama, who's a fabulous Jesuit who served as pastor at St. Thomas More Community in the Twin Cities. And he and the community there have paved a way for discerning deacons. So thank you to Father Warren. He retires this year. He's amazing. Show him some love if you know him. And uh, he's been such an advocate and ally standing with us in the Discerning Deacons Project. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Mm-hmm.